Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Brian Lehrer's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Monday, September 25th. On Thursday, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine completed a three-day visit to the United States, first addressing the U.N. General Assembly and then heading to Washington to try and shore up continued support from the U.S. government. Last time he was here in December, the Ukrainian president received a standing ovation from a joint session of Congress um, and received a lot of money and spending. This time, however, House Republicans refused to even meet with Zelensky. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy explaining to reporters why. This is a little busy week. We're dealing with the funding issue. I don't know how we could slip that in in such a short time. Reports from inside Congress suggest that House Republicans may be using support for Ukraine as a pawn for the government shutdown. Meanwhile, closer to home, the news broke right here before this show on Friday that the powerful New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez was charged with a corruption indictment that accuses him of using his foreign affairs influence for personal gain. He's accused of secretly aiding the government of Egypt and trying to thwart the criminal prosecution of a friend in exchange for gold bars and cash. Here to discuss all of those political news headlines and so much more is Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a column on life in Biden's Washington, and also co-anchors a weekly roundtable discussion on the Political Scene podcast and co-author with... Peter Baker of The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Welcome back to WNYC, Susan. Oh, it's great to be with you. I'm exhausted just uh, listening to your rundown of all the crazy <laughs> things that are uh, converging on us this uh, this week. Well, I, I, I imagine you're, you've been um, a, a little working overtime these last few weeks. Um, and uh, let's hear a little about that, starting with, with, uh, with Ukraine. Susan, on on Thursday, President Zelensky met with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Democrats behind closed doors. Uh, President Zelensky is asking for $24 billion in United States aid. Here's what Senator Charles Schumer told reporters following the meeting. There was a single sentence that summed it all up, and I'm quoting him verbatim. Mr. Zelensky said, if we don't get the aid, we will lose the war. All right, Susan, we're going to get to the Republican reaction, um, or to be specific, the infighting over this visit in a second. But first, what has the Democratic reaction to Zelensky been at this point in time? You know, it is very striking. First of all, that sentence, I think, really sums it up. Uh, You know, the Washington front in the war between Ukraine and Russia is is a decisive front. uh, And the United States has provided an extraordinary amount of military security intelligence assistance to Ukraine, uh, it, it would not be able to be launching this counteroffensive or to be fighting the way that it has been fighting for a year and a half without this extraordinary level of support. And of course, it's contingent on Congress continuing to to back that. It, there have been large bipartisan majorities. And by the way, it was actually Senate Republicans and Democrats who met with Zelensky. That was a bipartisan meeting of the entire U.S. Senate 
in the old Senate chamber, a very rare uh, thing to do for a foreign visitor. Uh, and I, I do think there, there remains strong backing from what you might call the more conventional wing of the Republican Party in this kind of age of Trump. But, but the direction of travel uh, is away from uh, from the bipartisanship and, you know, Donald Trump and many of his loudest accolades uh, uh, in the Republican Party are increasingly focused on politicizing the Ukraine uh, aid and 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 working against further authorization. Now, you mentioned the conventional wing, which I think in this age of Trump, as you said, uh, as you mentioned, can be really drowned out. We can almost forget that there are people who used to stand very uh, you know, ideologically anti-communist and uh, uh, in support of, say, the Ukrainian cause. Uh, how how vocal or how much clout does this wing have now? Well, I mean, it's still by far the dominant uh, on foreign policy. It is the dominant uh, uh, group of Republican elected officials in Congress, right? So uh, even in the House of Representatives, which is much more... Uh, performatively Trump. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing that with the government shutdown and everything. Um, even in the House of Representatives, the majority of the Republican conference supports Ukraine uh, and uh, has continued to do so. There was a vote earlier this summer and 70 House Republicans, that's about one third of House Republicans voted against continuing the aid. And that number is, that percentage is much lower in the Senate. So it, it, it's still the dominant voice on foreign policy among elected Republicans in Congress. But again, the the sort of the loud echo chamber, the direction of travel in the Republican Party is to uh, continue to empower the Trumpists. And as you know, Donald Trump has made public admiration for Vladimir Putin a staple of his persona. He uh, claimed that uh, Putin had shown strategic genius that was a quote genius after uh, the invasion of Ukraine in uh, February of 2022. He says now, well, he would just end the war in 24 hours. Obviously, his solution would would end up being a land for peace type deal. So it's 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 really it's an, an emerging fault line inside the GOP. Kevin McCarthy refused to let Zelensky even speak to a joint meeting of Congress. What did he say, and what do you think? are the optics of that. Yeah, that was really extraordinary, especially because it seemed to only underscore the ongoing kind of slow motion public humiliation of Kevin McCarthy, who's the weakest speaker uh, of my lifetime uh, of the House hmm. of Representatives and <clears throat> playing this hand of weakness. McCarthy has claimed to be a supporter of Ukraine, but is increasingly enthralled to this uh, fringe of his party that that is not. And I thought it was remarkable that he he refused to allow Zelensky to address a joint session of Congress. And uh, especially because he gave the excuse that he was essentially too busy and his conference was too busy uh, negotiating uh, uh, government spending bills. But of course, they not only failed to pass a single one of those bills last week, but twice last week, including on the very day that Zelensky was visiting Washington, <clears throat> McCarthy's 
uh, own rule for consideration of an important defense bill went down to defeat. And, you know, that's a procedural thing. But basically what it means is in the House of Representatives, if you can't get a rule passed to consider a bill, then essentially you've lost control of the House floor. You've lost control of your own majority. And so that that underscores the perilous situation that McCarthy is in. He really isn't really fully leading his own caucus. You said on the New Yorker's political scene podcast that losing the rule twice. Uh, and maybe you can kind of, uh, you know, elaborate on what that rule is when it comes to um, procedural rules over the Pentagon funding bill. Uh, McCarthy has suffered a couple defeats on that front uh, in the last week. And you said that, uh, quote, the, the nihilists are in charge. Uh, Speaker McCarthy publicly slammed his far right flank for wanting to, quote, burn the place down. Uh Tell us a little, take us into this this space a little and, and tell us who his main opponents are and what they really want. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that's very interesting when it comes to the question of what do they really want. Even McCarthy at one point, uh, not last week, but the week before, essentially came out and lamented to uh, reporters, I don't know what they want. <laughs> And of course, it's very hard to make a deal with people who are determined just to burn things down for the sake of burning things down. And that is why, you know, there's an element of nihilism to all of this. It's not so much about ideology, although this is a group of certainly very far right Republicans who, in a general sense, say that they're waging kind of a campaign against excessive government spending, which they define as pretty much any non-defense spending, and for some of them, even defense spending. So it's it's broadly speaking under the umbrella of anti-government spending, but the specifics are very hard to suss out in part because it's not so much about specifics. One thing I've noticed, and certainly supporters of Ukraine have noticed with alarm, is that they have increasingly made uh, ending funding for Ukraine, a condition of uh, their demands at various points. But many of them are also personal opponents of Speaker McCarthy. And that certainly includes Matt Gates, who is probably the most outspoken leader uh, of the movement toward the shutdown right now. And he uh, sort of triggered this as soon as Congress came back from its summer recess, got on the floor and said, essentially, I'm going to come here every day and seek to take down the Speaker. One of the things that happened Basically, this is all a result of the 2020 midterm elections. When Republicans were expected historically to win pretty big, they didn't. They did narrowly win back the House of Representatives, but as it turned out, with not a big enough uh, uh, margin for McCarthy to be comfortably installed as leader. And so remember the 15 ballots that it took to elect him as speaker back in in January? That was extraordinary. I mean, something we hadn't seen since the 19th century. And um, this is kind of the, the consequences of the deals he frantically made to make that happen coming back to bite him uh, because he made this huge concession in January to get the job. And he said, essentially, I will allow one single member of our conference to be able to bring a motion, a petition to the floor that would be to vacate the chair. In other words, to call for uh, essentially an, uh, an approval vote on whether the speaker should stay in power. And that has been the club uh, over McCarthy's head that people like Matt Gates have wielded. Now they seem like they may actually use it uh, in the middle of this spending fight. So it's entirely possible within the next week or so, we could see a, a, a kind of a no confidence vote against Kevin McCarthy that would tie the House of Representatives even more up in knots. And would that uh, conceivably empower House Democrats? 
Well, it's interesting. You know, there's sort of this fantasy and I have to say, right, you know, lots of fans of the West Wing out there. I'm a big fan of the West Wing, (laughs) right? There's always the kind of like fantasy, like, you know, kind of like good government outcome version in Washington. It usually doesn't happen (laughs) in my experience. And so the current uh, kind of West Wing scenario, if you will, for what how this week might play out is that um, enough Republicans, you know, kind of from these Biden voting swing districts. Uh, there are about 18 of them, by the way. There are 18 House Republicans, I believe, who were elected in districts that also went for Joe Biden at the presidential level. So, you know, those are the more moderate House districts. If enough Republicans and they only need five or six uh, joined with a, all Democrats, they could have uh, essentially control of the House floor and they could seize control of the House floor temporarily to uh, pass spending bills and to keep the government funded. Because by the way, the clock is really ticking. Saturday is the deadline. If these guys don't get their act together, the US government is gonna shut down for frankly, no real apparent reason except the the vanity and ego of a small number of uh, politicians. Susan, I, I just wanna for a moment circle back to uh to the war in Ukraine um, and away from the optics, but to substance. I mean, last time uh, Zelensky um, came to Washington, D.C., he addressed both sides of the aisle, got a standing ovation. What did he get from that last visit? And and, and what do you think he's likely to, to get now? Well, by the way, Zelensky did get something very significant in his meeting with uh, Joe Biden. He got essentially the last in a long uh, list of uh, weapons and high that and capabilities that the Ukrainians had asked for at the beginning of the war. And Biden did inform Zelensky, according to reporting after the visit, that uh, that he had finally and reluctantly signed off on sending attackums, which are longer range missiles than we have up until now provided to Ukraine. That would enable them, for example, to hit targets uh, uh, in occupied Crimea and elsewhere beyond uh, the range of their front lines. Um, the British have have provided similar missiles called the Storm Shadow missiles. The, this one from the U.S. is even longer. So he did get something new from Biden. Um, but the bigger issue right now is that there is an additional $24 billion uh, spending requests that the administration has sent up to Congress over the summer. And uh, they need that to continue funding and, and supporting Ukraine's military effort. Uh, this this counteroffensive, according to Ukrainian officials, they, they don't plan to stop it and they plan to keep fighting through the winter. Uh, but the money at some point will run out. Congress has provided something like, uh, uh, I don't know, more than $50 billion so far in military and security assistance since the Russian invasion in 2022. But um, while vast, it is not unlimited, it's running out right now. So that's uh, the bill that's getting caught up in the larger fight over the government shutdown. So, Susan, let's take it a little more local now. Uh, New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez and his wife are accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for the senator's political influence. Can you uh, briefly recap the accusations for listeners who might have missed the story and and give us your own take as well? Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, uh, this is really uh, a remarkable uh, document uh, as indictments go. I, it's 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 kind of a, a fascinating read. There are there are pictures 
to go along with it, pictures of things like gold bullion bars that the senator and his wife are accused of accepting, uh, pictures of a, a jacket with the U.S. Senate uh, logo on it and uh, the senator's name stuffed with cash. Uh, I believe uh, the indictment alleges that uh, more than $400,000 in cash was found uh, when they did uh, a search of uh, Menendez's uh, property and uh, his things. And, you know, the the overall allegation there, there are two other co-defendants as well, is that Menendez was essentially using his official position uh, on behalf of uh, undisclosed uh, foreign interests, the government of Egypt, uh, and uh, that he was receiving uh, improper payments, uh, including uh, also no-show work for his wife, uh, as well as the aforementioned cash and, and gold bullion, uh, and even I think a car was involved. So, you know, this is a, a kind of a classic uh, kind of foreign influence peddling uh, payoff scandal. It's reminiscent of some of the big scandals of uh, uh, the past. For example, the Abscam scandal way back uh, uh, when I was a, a little kid involved, I think then New Jersey Senator Harrison Williams uh, and same you know, thing, huge amounts of cash and uh, in that case, Middle Eastern lobbyist payoffs. Uh, and there was an FBI sting that was very controversial. In this case, the other thing that's notable is that it's not even the first time that Menendez, who was serving as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, has been forced to step aside from that role because of a federal corruption indictment. He already had one case against him a few years ago, which he got off after, uh, I believe, a, a, a deadlocked uh, uh, jury in his case in 2018. And now there's a whole different corruption charges being lodged against him. And certainly we're hearing uh, an uproar from some of his fellow Democrats uh, after the charges. Uh, let's listen to some of that. We're going to hear New York Representative Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, and Arizona Senator Mark Kelly here. I do believe that it is in the best interests uh, for Senator Menendez to resign in this moment. As you mentioned, consistency matters. It shouldn't matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. The details in this indictment are extremely serious. They involve uh, the nature of, of not just his, but all of our seats in Congress. This is a very serious charge. There's no question about it. In terms of resignation, that's a decision to be made by Senator Menendez and the people of New Jersey. Well, these are serious and shocking charges. Uh, bribery, corruption. Um, I've never seen anything like this. I think uh, Senator Menendez is going to have to think long and hard about the cloud uh, that's going to hang over his service in the United States Senate. That was New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, and Arizona Senator Mark Kelly speaking to CNN. Uh, Susan, uh, this sounds sort of like to me like, a, I guess, a pattern where, you know, a very distinct pattern in terms of how Democrats handle these kinds of accusations versus Republicans. Am I, am I correct, do you think? Well, I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing such a loud pressure campaign on Menendez to step aside for that reason that Democrats would like to be able to make that contrast between how they're approaching this case and how Republicans uh, are approaching the four criminal cases pending against Donald Trump. So they are looking to make that juxtaposition. Remember, Democrats are the ones who pressured 
uh, Al Franken, the, the Minnesota Democratic senator, to step aside uh, after allegations that you know were nothing like this uh, and certainly didn't involve a criminal case against him. So there's also the question of what are the the standards inside the Democratic caucus? I thought it was very notable that New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy and many of the um, other members of the New Jersey congressional delegation all acted en masse on Friday uh, to say that Menendez should step aside. And that you know shows a big split inside the state Democratic Party if Menendez chooses to fight, one big question is what he will do about 2024, because he is actually up for re-election uh, in 2024. This is presumed to be a pretty solidly Democratic seat, but you know Republicans could have a chance if uh, Menendez were to run and were to win uh, the primary again with this cloud hanging over him. One of the Congress people, Andy Kim, has already announced that he's running. Others could jump in the Democratic primary as well. So there are political implications for this, including, by the way, to control of the U.S. Senate, which is very, very narrow right now. Now, given that, one of the big questions hanging over Washington is how a former president who's been indicted four times can be running competitively with uh, the current president, Joe Biden. Do you think that this idea of showing um, a strong response to alleged corruption charges, um, that it's going to empower Democrats, do you think that is uh, um, wishful thinking on their part? Or do you think that it actually you know, does bear some re resemblance to how people actually vote? <laughs> you know, it's a it's it's a great question. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I do. I, I I'm glad you started with this observation because I think it's the most important one. Uh, it's a remarkable situation that we find ourselves in as a country that's so divided that Donald Trump has not lost the support of the Republican Party after everything. Uh, that he continues to be the runaway leader in the Republican primary fight for 2024, despite the four criminal indictments, despite the two impeachments, despite uh, his becoming literally the only president in American history to seek to overturn the results of a, of a legitimate election and all of the other outlying behavior. So it's it's a remarkable thing that, that uh, whatever you think of any particular poll uh, essentially these these two are running that close to dead even it's it's really tells you i think about an ongoing very serious crisis in our in our country now one of the few people publicly defending menendez would happen to be republican congressman george santos of new york who is um facing 13 federal criminal charges related to alleged financial crimes santos is calling for due process uh not the best look for Menendez that he's getting very little support from anyone else, is it, Susan? <laughs> well, you know, you sometimes I guess you don't pick uh, who you end up in the foxhole with, but um, you know, you could definitely do better than to have the the fellow guy who's accused of serious federal crimes uh, be in your corner, uh, and that suggests that uh, you know there's not there's not going to be a lot of um, solidarity. I don't think behind Senator Menendez, if he chooses to stay and fight in the Senate, it, 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 it it's a disgrace. I mean, that, that, you know, whatever the criminality or not that ultimately is found, he's entitled, of course, to, uh, you know, his defense and his day in court. Uh, but these uh, allegations clearly uh, bring uh, 
an amount of disrepute on the Senate. They are very, very serious. And to me, they they go right to the heart of his official position. Uh, he wasn't just a rank and file member of the Senate. This is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman uh, allegedly abusing the power of that position. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. My guest has been New Yorker staff writer Susan Glasser. She's also the co-author with Peter Baker of The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Susan, thank you so much for coming on today. Great to be with you. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.